You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Second Timothy chapter 4, a lawyer was having a conversation uh, with a widow. This lady had lost her husband, and this lawyer was having a conversation with her to try to find out what this man's last words were. Apparently, uh, this widow was with her husband in the last moments of his life, and, and this lawyer was struggling because he, he had no will. Uh, he had no directives on how to handle the estate. So he was interested in talking with this widow and find out what this man said in his last hours of life. And so after many attempts, the lawyer kept asking this woman, and she just wouldn't tell him. She, she just wouldn't tell him what those last words were. And the lawyer didn't know if it was because it was personal or, or what the reasoning was, but she just wouldn't tell him. Well, after several weeks of maybe bugging her to death, finally she comes to his office and finally relents and is going to tell the lawyer what the man's last words were. And this is, this is what she said. The last thing he ever said to me was, quote, You don't scare me. You couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with that old gun. Yeah, it, f- it fell flat in first service. It's falling flat here. See, this is why I'm not in comedy. Because <laughs> that was meant to be a joke, folks. Now you're just laughing at me. You're not laughing with me. It's all good. Wow, I'm, I'm 0 for 2 today. So First Timothy 4, we're going to focus more on Paul today than Timothy. We've focused most of our time on what Paul had to say to Timothy, and certainly that applies today because he's closing out this letter. But Paul, who was once Saul, I want to take you back. I want you to consider this man because he's in his closing moments of his life. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. He was born Saul in 86 as a Roman citizen, but to Jewish parents, which was very unique. And even then, even in that moment, as, as Ed was talking a little bit about being formed in our mother's wombs, a purpose and a plan, even in, in Paul's birth, there was a plan already in place that his Roman citizenry would, would become a tremendous asset when he becomes a missionary for the cause of Christ. He, at age 13, he begins his studies in the Torah, under the teacher named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was well known. He was a scholar. He, he, was, he had a lot of, of people who looked up to him. And, and at age 13, Paul is able to sit under his teaching as his rabbi. Even that was very unique. So Paul got an incredible education in Old Testament and, and what God was doing there. And not only that, Paul would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. And certainly by age 13, 14, right in around in that age, he would have already done that. He would have been a scholar by the, by the time he was 20. He would have been a scholar of the Old Testament. And of course, by age 24, he becomes a Pharisee. Paul said that he was a Pharisee of all Pharisees, coming from the tribe of, of Benjamin. And, and Paul himself was making a name. Saul was climbing this ladder of success within Judaism, and people were watching him, and people were looking at him, and, and he was given more and more responsibility. And between the ages of 24 and 30... Saul had a mission. 
A very clearly defined mission, a mission that he testifies about later on in his life. And that mission was to destroy Christianity. Because Saul saw Christianity as a sect, as heresy, as something that must be destroyed. And, and he made it as his purpose to go out and arrest Christians, to, to throw them into jail, and even stand by while they were being murdered, and, and possibly even himself participating in the killing of people who followed Jesus. Paul or Saul at that time in his life saw Jesus as nothing more than a thief who deserved to die on a cross and nothing more. That the Romans did exactly what they should have done and the Jews did exactly what they should have done by accusing Jesus of blasphemy and hanging him on a cross. So between the ages of 24 and 30, that was Saul's mission. But one day he was making a 150-mile journey to Damascus and he was on this road and, and Saul thinks he's got it all figured out. Saul thinks he knows exactly what his life is to be about. He, he, he thinks he knows what his mission in life is, and he's going to Damascus to fulfill that, that mission. And on that road, a blinding light brings him to his knees. And out of that light, he sees none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to Saul, Jesus, or Saul, why do, you, why do you kick against the goads? In other words, these sharp sticks that they would use to control animals. Jesus says to Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against that? Isn't it kind of painful to keep denying what you know to be true? That I was more than just a blasphemer. I was more than just some guy who was teaching heresy. I am the Son of God. And on that day, on that road, Saul was blinded. But as I've said before, even though he was physically blind, I think it's at that moment he began to spiritually see for the first time in his life. He makes his way to Ananias' house, and, and over some days there, Ananias comes to him, and, and Saul is completely surrendered now to a new mission, one that was going to take him on a journey that he couldn't have possibly understood. But even in that initial calling, Jesus says about Paul to Ananias, says that this man is going to suffer. This man, set apart for my purposes, is going to suffer. So at age 30, Paul begins his journey on a new mission. Saul becomes Paul. But now where we find him at 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find a man who's now 60 years old. And he's in a prison, not just um, a Roman prison of any kind, but a Mamertine prison. And in that prison, he's suffering. And this man who's 60 years old, between the ages of 30 and 60, this is what this man accomplished. He traveled on foot 10,000 plus miles. That's the equivalent of walking from New York to Los Angeles four times. He planted 22 churches. And if he didn't have enough going on, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. So in 30 years, this mission that, that Paul is on, the accomplishments, the, the gospel being spread in very difficult, hard places, the places that Paul planted these churches were very difficult, hard places to plant churches. There was no gospel presence in these areas. Paul, Paul was, a, Paul was a, a missionary who was sent out to these places to be the very first one to talk about Jesus, the resurrection, the gospel, and how it can change your life. But here, 
And this letter is a man who is bent over. If we could walk into that prison for just a moment and just maybe get a, a picture in our mind's eye of what Paul looks like now, you'd probably be shocked. He is, he's no doubt bent over. No doubt every time he moves, he's in pain. Remember, all of the beatings that he endured, he had multiple broken bones. No doubt his ribs were broken, possibly even his lungs getting punctured at points along the way. There was no hospital for him to run to. If certainly, he had Luke, the doctor, with him. There's only so much you could do in that day and that time. So Paul just had to suffer through it. And as you see this man in this prison, he's wet, he's dark, he can't see because it's a pit that he's in. No doubt he's hungry because he's not being taken care of here. He has no freedom. And Paul himself knows that probably within days of the time he's writing this, Nero is going to take his head from his shoulders. Paul knows that. So these are the last words of this great man of God who has served hard and served well. But what we've got to understand, like so many other people that we see in the Bible that did great things for God, we've got to understand that Paul was not a superhuman. He felt those beatings. Uh, he, he is feeling the weight of being in this prison. Paul is not superhuman. Paul is just a guy who was obedient to God accepted the mission that he had been given and lived it out with faithfulness. Paul not only is an example to Timothy, but he's an example to us. And I want us to pay close attention to these closing words of the life of a man who lived his life well for the cause of Christ. Because I think we find an example here, a pattern that he leaves to Timothy and that he leaves to us. Look at verse 1. I charge you, there, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living of the dead, living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to their truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, we pause and we thank you for the clarity and the beauty and the perfection of your word. That before us this morning, we have the final words of a man who had a tremendous impact on the gospel. So, Father, we want to pay attention to what he said to Timothy. We want to pay attention because, Father, there, is, there are some things here that we need to focus our heart and our life upon. For time is passing by. Our culture and our community needs a bold witness. Father, our community and our culture needs someone to take Jesus into the culture and proclaim Him boldly. Not just in our words, but in the way we live our life. So Father, by the time we get to the end of this, I pray that you would bring conviction into the hearts of those who need it. Maybe for salvation. Maybe for those, Father, who have 
who have forsaken their calling, forsaken their mission, forsaken the path that you've placed us on at the very beginning. And Father, may we be obedient in this time that you've given us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul says to Timothy here, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is fulfill your ministry. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure you preach the word. Now he's already said in this letter, he's already said to Timothy, Timothy, you must rightly divide it. We talked about how that means to cut it straight, to interpret and apply it correctly, to, to watch out for the false teaching that, that has a desire to creep in at every angle Make sure that you rightly divide God's Word. And then we heard last week that, that God's Word is special, that it is God's breath to us, that God moved upon men to write down the words that we have. And the words that we have in the 66 books of this Bible are is the complete revelation of God. All that we need to know, all that we need to live out our faith is right here. It is perfect and it's pure. And it has the ability to, to change a person from the inside out. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. Timothy, preach the Word when you feel like it and when you don't. Timothy, proclaim the Word when things aren't going your way and when everything is lining up. Timothy, make sure you do this both in season and out of season. And make sure you understand this is not just for the preachers. Every follower of Jesus has the responsibility and the great commission work that we've been given to proclaim the truth. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't do it when you feel like it. Do it all the time. Do it when you're in season and out of season. Do it when there's opposition. Do it when things are going your way. Do it when you feel like it. Do it when you don't. Do it when you're sick. Do it when you feel well. You see, people that follow Jesus are people of the Word. Jesus, the incarnate Word, John 1. Word, taken on flesh, dwelling among us. We are people of the book. And when it comes down to what is true and what is false, we can move no further than this book and what it says. We cannot put it aside. Because we know that within this book are the words of life. The words that our Creator wants us to know. And to live by. Timothy, fulfill your ministry because there's a time coming. And Timothy experienced it in his day. And certainly we're experiencing it today. He says there is a time coming, verse 3, where people will not endure sound teaching. In other words, they will not want to hear the truth. And not only will they not want to hear it, but they're going to go out and they're going to find teachers who will teach them falsehoods so that they'll feel good about themselves. Well, if that was happening in Ephesus, it is certainly happening today. He says that they will heap up teachers. Look at verse 3. He says, the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. But get this, but having itching ears, they will accumulate or heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You ever had that, uh, you ever had that itch right in the center of your back that you can't reach? You know, and I got shoulder problems over here, and it gets just in that right place where I can't reach it from this side, and I can't reach it from that side. It's driving me crazy. So I have to go to Tracy. Tracy, can you, can you scratch right there? No, no, a little lower. You know how that is, right? Well, when you got that itch, you, you'll, you'll seek out people to scratch it. Paul gives the illustration, the metaphor here, that there is an itching down in the ears of people, and they desire to only want to hear what makes them feel good. They only want to hear what says to them. They only want to hear teaching that says, you're okay, we're okay, we're all okay. 
No, you don't have to change your lifestyle. No, you don't have to do anything different. You don't have to give up your addictions. You don't have to, you don't have to do any of that. You, 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 can, you can be religious and do and live however you want to live. And you see, that's scratching an itch down deep in their ear of what they want to hear. And apparently, there are plenty of teachers because it says here, they will accumulate, they will heap up. In other words, there will be plenty of people who have a teaching that contradicts the truth of God's Word. And by the way, we have plenty of them all over the world today. Some of them have very large ministries. Some of them you can watch huge ministries on TV. But they are only there to scratch an itch. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Complete your ministry. Do what you've been called to do. He says, as for you, verse 5, always be sober-minded. He said this several times to Timothy now. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, be sober-minded. What does that mean? To have a clear mind. Be careful of what your culture is telling you. Be, be careful that you're not mixing the gospel or the truth of God's Word in with what the culture is saying and coming up with some kind of new idea for the purpose of itching someone's ear to make them feel good, to, to tell them to pursue their passions at whatever cost. He says, be sober-minded. He says, endure suffering. He doesn't say to Timothy, Timothy, try to get away from suffering. Hey, Timothy, if it's possible for you to sidestep around suffering, by all means do it. No, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, endure suffering. It is almost as though Paul is saying to Timothy, when you preach the gospel, when you proclaim the truth, you can expect a byproduct of that is suffering. That's exactly what he's saying. And Timothy knows that Paul knows what that's like. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Share the gospel. You see, a church can become about a lot of things. A ministry can become about a lot of things and lose the best thing. There can be a lot of activity. There can be a lot of work going on, a lot of activity inside the ministry of the church. And guess what happens? The gospel gets lost in all of that. Then we can be about a lot of good things and lose the best thing. And that is the gospel. Be about the work of an evangelist. So the first example that Paul says to Timothy and lived out in front of Timothy is, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Paul fulfilled his ministry. Timothy had been prepared by his grandmother and his mother and by Paul. Turn over to Ephesians 2. I want to show you this verse. Ephesians 2, Paul writes this letter to this exact same church. And in Ephesians 2, he says something that is astounding that we need to pay attention to. In Ephesians chapter 2, let's pick it up at verse, uh, verse 8, a verse you're probably familiar with. So Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus years before Timothy was the pastor, he says to them, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Come back to 2 Timothy. Paul had already written to this church and said to this church, listen, your salvation was a gift of God. And the reason it was a gift is so that you'll never be able to brag about how you pulled yourself out of your brokenness and your sin, that it was a gift of God by His grace. But not only that, another gift is that you are His workmanship, that God is, is working in your life. He is forming you and molding you and making you and growing you up into the full stature of Christ Himself as the example. 
But he also says there that there's a path that we're to be walking. You have a ministry. You have a calling. You've been gifted to fulfill that calling. Now, oftentimes when we hear that word calling, we think of pastors and missionaries. Forget that. Yes, it's true, but it's just as equally true for you. Right there, Paul said to that church that there is a path, a set of good works that you're to be working. There is a path that God has carved out for you that even before you came to faith in Christ, even in eternity past, there is a ministry already cut out for you. Fulfill your ministry. I don't know what that is for you. But I know that God's not keeping it a secret from you. That's not how He operates. He's gifted you. He's called you. He set you apart by the gospel for work in His kingdom. And that work is work you're supposed to do. I can't do it for you. There's not enough sermons I can preach up here that will fulfill the role Christ has for you to fulfill. There's not enough going to church that will fulfill the ministry that He's called you to do. You must step up. You must step into that role. And you must be faithful to fulfill your ministry. So fulfill your ministry. Notice this, verse 7. He gives us another indication of what it means to finish well. Look at verse 6, verse, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight. Did, did Paul have a sword in his sheath? Was he, was he going to blows with people in Athens when they disagreed with him? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that when we, when we follow Jesus, there is going to be pushback from us following Jesus and proclaiming the truth. And Paul says, we must fight the good fight. Here's, here's what I think Paul's saying. Paul's saying, stand your ground. We've lost a lot of ground in America. We've lost a lot of ground in Lumberton. You have conversations with people and you find out what people believe and what they understand to be the gospel, and it is shocking. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to fight the good fight. After Paul's conversion, the Jews hated him because he was a traitor. The, the Christians didn't trust him, so they didn't accept him. So there was a moment of time after Paul's conversion when he's had this incredible experience with Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he lays down his life for the cause of Christ. His own people rejected him. The Christians didn't trust him because they thought he was going to turn. They thought he was going to creep into their fellowship and look around and see where all the Christians were and then revert back to the old days of Saul and have them arrested and put to death. So Saul, Paul, was very much alone. But he didn't give up. If it wasn't for Barnabas, if it wasn't for Barnabas standing in the gap for Paul, he would have continued to be rejected for quite some time. Paul didn't fit in no matter where he went. He goes to Ephesus, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. What does he find? People who hate him? Simply because he speaks the truth. But what blows my mind about Paul is in all these places that he goes, oftentimes he would get beaten up and thrown out in the edge of the city. There'd be one time that he'd be almost beat to death, and once he comes back to himself, you know what Paul does? He gets up, dusts himself off, and goes right back into the city, right back to the people, that already threatened his life and almost killed him. Why is that? 
It's because he had to fight the good fight. The people in that city needed to hear the gospel. And the love that he had for those people compelled him to go. We also find that Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said that he had a thorn in the flesh. And in that passage, he says there that he went before God and he prayed vigorously for God to remove that thorn. We don't know what it was. I'm glad he didn't tell us. Some people think it was vision. He couldn't see well. Some people think he had a, a hip problem where he limped all the time or some other kind of physical ailment. I, I think it was a physical ailment. But he goes before God and he says to God, God, if you could just remove this, that Satan is using this thing, this weakness, this thorn, whatever it is, he's using it against me to buffet me, to beat me down, to discourage me, to, to, to just draw the strength out of me. And God, if you will, I've seen you heal all the people. Could you remove this? And you know what God says? No. He not only says it once, he says it more. No. So what does Paul do? He doesn't have a pity party. God says, this thing that's in your flesh that I'm going to leave, you're going to have to rely on my grace to do what you've been called to do. You know what Paul does? He doesn't have a pity party. He doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. He gets up, and he moves on with fighting the good fight. Stand your ground. Dad, you've got to stand your ground. You're going to have to stand upon the truth of God's Word more today than you've ever had to. Because what's coming at your kids, what's coming at your family, what's coming down the road, you have got to stand. You've got to fight the good fight. It doesn't mean we're ugly. doesn't mean we're angry. doesn't mean we're one of those angry Christians and we're beating people over the head with a Bible. No, what we do, we do in love. But dads, moms, families, grandfathers, grandmothers, you must stand firm. Here I stand and I can move no more. That's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, I cannot budge. I cannot move. I must stand right here. Fight the good fight. Stand your ground. In a culture that is driven by feelings, I don't know if you've had any conversations like this recently, but I have. Just like in Ephesus, in our culture, everybody's driven by how they feel. So if I'm going to meet with someone, we're going to talk about Jesus, they're going to sit down at the table, they're going to talk about how they feel. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to talk about the truth of Scripture. I'm going to talk about the truth of the resurrection and how it can change your life. And, and here's where we have. We end up on two basically different mountains. They're only concerned about how they feel. I'm concerned about truth, and it seems like we're worlds apart. So, I don't mind talking about your feelings, but ultimately, truth must win out, even if it hurts your feelings. Yes, there is a heaven. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, there is only one way, no other. Yes, Jesus actually bodily resurrected from the dead, and that's a game changer. Those are truths that we must stand upon. And whether you feel like it or whether you don't, whether you like it, whether it feels good, whether it feels bad, whether it, whether it conflicts with what you see the world to be, does not matter. At the end of the day, the truth is what sets people free. And here we must stand. And here we must fight. Third, Paul says, not only are we to fulfill our ministry and fight the good fight, he says we are to finish strong. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have finished the race. Paul uses this.